Before we start this podcast, I want to definitely remind you of a sponsor for Fresh of the Word, 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. In a world of wrestling where there's hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads, don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. So if you'd like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or even Zubaz, then drop them a line at 20by20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20apparel.com. And also check out their enamel pin line. It's super cool. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bummy, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yell about it though. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grindin' shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kids, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Fraser, and this is episode 189. And the guest for this episode is photographer Ellen Stagg, who recently released her newest photo book, More Dirty Girls Having Fun, via Goliath Books. It's a beautiful book, and through her camera lens, Ellen Stagg was able to create a fun environment and capture these women uninhibited throughout the 300-plus images featured. During our conversation, Stagg shares her motivation in photographing naked ladies, the diversity she strives for in this book, the artistry of her work, and the business side of working with these ladies. Also, she shared her recovery from Lyme disease and offered a lot of great information for women who struggle with getting their own health issues diagnosed. I was able to order a copy of More Dirty Girls Having Fun after we had our, had this conversation, and it is a, a beautiful book. I highly recommend uh, picking it up. Links to where you can pick it up will be in the show notes for this episode at freshestpodcast.com. So without further ado, let's get into my interview with Ellen Stagg. Going back to 2016, you uh, released the Dirty Girl Collection. It was, uh-huh. you know, had over, you know, 300 photos of you know, adults, most, you know, alluring models and performers. And, you know, what was your idea behind doing that book? And what was the reaction to it once you uh, released it? I didn't necessarily have an idea for doing that book. When I first started shooting Naked Ladies in 2005, and before that, I've been a professional photographer since 1999. Um, I knew that there was a point where I wanted to do a book but 
it's easier said than done. And I tried a self-published one, but it was really hard if you don't have the right distribution and people to like talk about it, you know? So, um, actually Goliath a couple of times before 2016 contacted me that they wanted to have some of my images for their collaboration books. So they'd have like a book on stockings and have like a bunch of photographers send in images with models and stockings. And so every time they contacted me, I would sit around for a day or two and put together every image that I've ever shot of models and stockings and then send them like a folder and they'd be like, Oh, that's great. But we're going to pass this time. And I'm like, well, that's a year and a half. I mean, not sorry. That's a a day and a half to two days of my time being wasted. (laughs) Right. So in like late 2015, they contacted me again about a collaboration book. And I was just like, I don't want to spend my time doing this. I don't have time to like sit and like look over all the images of things with latex or something fetish. And so I just sent them a pass to stagstreet.com. And I was like, just check out my work here. If you see anything you like, give me a, you know, contact me. And then within a week or two after that, they contacted me saying, actually, you have so much work. We would love to do a whole book on just you. And I was like, now you're talking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Now I'll spend the time to put something together. (laughs) So um, the first book, I more trusted my publisher to um, go through all my work and figure out which um, images were best for them because they're they publish a bunch of books like this, so they know what they're doing, you know? So I just let them tell me, and they ended up picking like a lot of images of Shay Loren, Charlotte Stokely, Heather Vandevin, like these typical, beautiful, blonde, um, sexy, like natural penthouse type models. And when I saw what they chose, I was like, this is great. I'm going to trust you because I want to sell books. But I wish there was like a little bit more diversity and body types and stuff. Yeah. So when um, in July 2018, I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease and I contacted or my publisher and I were contacting each other about something else. And they were like, I was like, sorry, I've been really bad with returning emails because I got really, really sick and had to go to a specialist. And so I made a video of my journey through Lyme disease. And sent it to them, and they were like, oh, we'll help you to raise money. We should do a second book. And I was like, yes, I'm totally down for that. <laughs> right. But with the second book, I was like, can we make it, like, can I pick out more of the pictures and have more diversity and have bigger girls in it and more ethnic girls? And like, and they were like, yeah, we're totally down for that. So it was like the, the first one I trusted them, and the second one they trusted me. How's your health right now? My health has been really great thanks to being on antibiotics for nine months and doing like a bunch of supplements. But then I've been doing this alternative medicine called Combo, and that's been the actual best thing for the Lyme disease. And I currently haven't had a flare-up in over a month. Okay, that's good. And I don't know if you've heard of Combo, but it's they burn Amazonian frog poison into your skin. <laughs> and, and it makes you, it's kind of in the same world as like ayahuasca. It makes you violently ill, but you don't trip like ayahuasca. You don't have like hallucinogens, hallucinate, oh my God, hallucinating stuff. Right. You just get like really sick where you get really, really warm. Your heart beats like crazy. Um, and when I was first told about it, I thought it was crazy. 
Um, but I've done it three times and I have no idea how it works, but it works and I feel great because of it. So I, um, I don't, I don't think it's for everybody. It's not just for people with Lyme disease, autoimmune diseases, fertility, depression, but um, if people are interested in trying it, I'm like, yeah, it, it really helped me. So I stand by it for myself, at least. For what you have, is there, you know, is the, is this Lyme disease, is there um, a, like, what for better, for lack of a better word, a cure or any way it can be, you know, resolved? They, it, the problem with Lyme disease is it's an umbrella term for over 90 tick-borne diseases. So actually when different people have different reactions to quote-unquote Lyme disease because you could have different like, strains of the uh, spirochetes, the varella. It de- totally depends. So with me, when I went to a specialist and got my blood work tested and they actually sent my blood to Germany because the Europeans believe in Lyme disease more than America does. Of course. And <laughs> of course, <laughs> especially with our healthcare system here being as crap as it is. Yeah, they don't believe um, in anything. But, it doesn't mean, eh, eh, you know, eh, walk it off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And especially if you're a woman, God forbid, because they just think you're crazy. Oh, yeah, And they yeah, don't actually yeah. believe in if, your symptoms. If women have so, anything in this uh, in this country, they they just think you're overacting, you know. And yeah. you're like, what the fuck, man? It's There's so many things that, that uh, women particularly deal with health-wise in America and they cannot get the treatment that they need. Totally. Because doctors don't want to believe in them, but a lot of it stems to the CDC has actually been lying to the American people about how bad Lyme disease is since the 80s. And there's a $57 million lawsuit against them because there's proof that they've been lying to the American people about how bad Lyme disease is. And I grew up in the woods of Connecticut. Like, I... I knew people who got Lyme disease, but you get like some arthritis, you take some antibiotics and you're over it. I never believed in chronic Lyme and I knew a couple people and I was like, it's probably something else. And I didn't believe it until it happened to me. And I got bit four and a half years ago in Long Island and there was a tick like on me. So I know that I was bit and I was going through some other health issues. So when I started having all the, um, symptoms for Lyme disease, I almost didn't believe it. And I went to eight different doctors, had a CAT scan and CAT scan and an MRI done of my brain. Um, and I was like, there's gotta be some reason why I'm this sick. And nobody, none of these doctors are believing me. And then finally, thanks to Google, I searched out, um, a Lyme specialist here in New York city. And within the first 20 minutes of talking to him, he was like, yeah, I'm putting you on the antibiotics. It's so obvious to me that you have Lyme disease. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. So, um, yeah, I mean, each person is different. So mine was affecting my brain and giving me neurological issues where wow. I had like double vision, rocking back and forth uncontrollably. I didn't have control over my left hand. Um, other people could have it where it just affects their muscles and their joints. Like some people, if you get Lyme disease in your heart, you will have a heart attack. So it, for each person, it's completely different. And why combo all of works for it, I have no idea. The only thing that a friend of mine told me is nature versus nature. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> even my boyfriend thinks it's like, he's like, it's snake oil. She's selling you snake oil. And I'm like, if she is, it's working. So <laughs> I can't be mad at it. And you kind of mentioned it, you know, uh, 
Lyme disease, you know, you, you, you get that from getting bitten by something or? A tick. A tick? Okay. That's... Yeah, thankfully it's not mosquitoes or fleas or anything else. It's for some reason only a tick disease. And it's actually, the ticks are just carriers. When a tick is born, it doesn't have Lyme disease in it. But ticks, when they're first born, they bite mice and chipmunks. And it's a chipmunks and mouse disease. And then when the tick gets older, it carries this um, bacteria, this the spare keat inside of it. And then it goes and bites things like deer, which if you see the difference between a mouse and a deer, there's so much more body to a deer. So a mouse can what carry a couple ticks on it, where a deer could carry a couple thousand ticks. And deers run longer distances, so they just spread those ticks all around. And that's why it's always associated as like, a deer disease, but it's not. It's actually a mouse and chipmunk disease. Well, I'm, g- yeah. I'm glad you're uh, you're feeling better, and hopefully, you know, you continue on with what you're able to use to, uh, you know, keep that at bay. But yeah, no, thanks for uh, sharing all that information about, uh, you know, your condition. Um, I think, um, you know, I think in regards to, you know, things like that, especially uh, dealing with, uh, you know, women. Uh, we, we have to have more discussions about, you know, healthcare for people in general, but, you know, specifically for women, because like we said, yeah. you know, they, uh, you know, our Ameri- the American healthcare system will just, you know, look at women like you're crazy, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Thank you about that. And um, especially like being a woman is one thing, but if you're a heavyweight woman, it's even worse for them. Because they think they're crazy and that all their problems are the fact that they're fat. And it's like there's been women out there who are heavy that ended up having cancer. And these doctors don't want to pay attention to them because they're heavy set. And it's like, that's yeah. even bullshit. Yeah, like, they always blame it on their wrong weight. What's with these doctors? Like, yeah. Lose some weight and it should. But yeah. Well, it's... you can't lose cancer with losing weight. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's, it's so bad. Like, and I've... fat people get cancer too. All kinds of people get cancer. So, no, maybe you should just listen to your patient and, and actually really think about what's going on. Right. It's so wild, like hearing um, a lot of the women friends that I have who that you know especially with something like uh, endometriosis where they're just struggling for you know people just to believe them when they try yeah. to get treatments and they you know they they feel like they're the they actually start believing that they're crazy because no one will yeah. believe them yeah i believed that i was crazy i literally when the I went to a neurologist who basically thought my the headaches I was getting for Lyme disease because I had a three-month-long headache, and he was like, it's just migraines, and so he put me on steroids, and I now know that if you take steroids and you have Lyme disease, because Lyme disease is about your immune system, yeah. so if your immune system is healthy, you're not going to have a flare-up, but the steroids kills your immune system, so I went from just having a three-month-long headache to having all those neurological problems, and then the neurologist didn't want to listen to like any of my problems and just put me on volume on top of the steroids. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, so I went from just having a headache to feeling like I was poisoned and crazy and on volume. And I was like, okay, so I feel sick, but then I take this medicine that just makes me fall asleep. So I'm, I can't function. Like (laughs) this is ridiculous. So Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, if it was like a rich white guy with all those symptoms, you're like, oh, let's figure this out. Yeah. 
which is the only thing that I feel like is good about Lyme disease because it affects it now is in all 50 states, but it's really prevalent in places like Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, all these rich white people states. <laughs> and so I'm like, yes. I want more rich white people to get Lyme disease because maybe they actually will do something about it. You know? Of course, yes. Yeah, it's only it's only so, until like it, it affects those types of people that people will start uh, paying attention to things. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast about Lyme disease, and there was a doctor on it that was believed in Lyme disease, and he was like, "This is reminding me of HIV in the '80s, where like all these people are coming to us sick, and we're not sure what to do." Yeah. But that's the thing with Lyme disease; it's supposed to be tested the same way as HIV, where you test your immune system and not for the actual, because you can only really test for Lyme disease when it's in the first 30 days in your bloodstream. And after you've been bit by the tick and it's in your bloodstream, you can find it. But then after 30 days, it actually hides from your bloodstream. So if you just do that regular test, it's really hard. Like I did three Lyme disease tests and it came back negative because it wasn't in my Lyme, in my bloodstream anymore. Yeah, and the problem so, is, like, people don't know what's going on in those first 30 days, probably. Yeah, yeah. Because it's and such an unknown. Yeah, and I was sick with something else when I got bit. So I think all my, like, symptoms mashed together. But, yeah. Yeah, like, too any, much. like anytime you get sick between feeling your first uh, feeling of being sick to finally going to the doctor to, you know, waiting for a test result or, you know, first getting an appointment and then w- waiting for test results. That could be over 30 days there. Oh yeah. And God forbid you need anything like an MRI or a CAT scan, but you then need to get your insurance company to sign off on that could take a couple of weeks, you know, like it, it's ridiculous. Where you should just be able to go to a doctor and they're like, oh, yeah, you are having symptoms. We should test for these symptoms instead of seeing if the insurance company will pay for it or not. Uh, yeah, we're, we're all like bound by the, the powers of the insurance companies. Yeah. Bleh. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to your um, photography. My work and my book. <laughs> yeah. But no, but thank you for uh, sharing all that information. I think it's really good uh, information to share that people do need to know about. Um, yeah, I mean, I've helped like five people in the past year get diagnosed for Lyme disease because they were having symptoms of X, Y, and Z, like fibromyalgia yeah. is very connected to Lyme disease. And so I helped people because I was like, look at this, this, and this. And then they went and got properly tested. And they're like, holy shit, my problems were Lyme disease. And I was like, you're welcome. <laughs> but right. the fact that me, a photographer, knows more about a disease than most doctors is kind of scary. But yeah, going back to photography, I, yeah, I have no, my, I have no problem telling people my journey because if it helps them. But my other journey is my work. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Let's talk about that. You um, you mentioned that you started uh, photographing naked women in like 2015. You know, what was sort of the idea behind starting to do that? No, it was 2005. Oh, 2005. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so you, yeah, cause it took like 10 years to get my first book 
And then as soon as my first book came out, I had people already ask me within the first couple of months, like, when's your second book? And I was like, <laughs> it took me 10 years to get this far. Like, <laughs> give me a second. Like, I'm actually, I mean, I, I, I'm so in love with my second book and I'm so happy about it that I'm like so surprised I even have a second book. And like for it to come out three and a half years later is like, it, it's, it's really amazing to me that I have enough work to even, I mean, I do think I have enough work to make 10 books, but enough work that people want to look at a whole second book, you know, like it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. But what was, um, you know, what was your motivation back in 2005 with, uh, you know, just starting to photograph women? Well, when I started being a photographer, I was 16 in high school in the nineties. And I even knew back then that I really liked stuff that was more erotic. Like I was in love with Madonna back then and, and early nineties, she came out with the erotica album. Yeah. So, but I could only do so much in high school because one, I was underage and all my little friends were underage. Like my photography teacher, I would photograph girls in lingerie. It wasn't like full nude or anything pornographic, but like lingerie. And my teacher would be like, Ellen, this is borderline illegal. And I was like, <laughs> oh shit. Cause they were like 16, 17, you know? <laughs> so, um, but then when I went to the School of Visual Arts for photography, I was I totally thought that I was just going to be doing like I wanted to be in galleries and I wanted to be like the next Maplethorpe, like a female Maplethorpe. And um, and then I realized that like that, especially in New York, is near to impossible and still is near to impossible to get your work into galleries and be a successful artist selling your artwork in galleries. And I met an, an agent in late 1999 who was like, I can send your work out to advertising and magazines and like, let's go down that route. And I was like, well, that makes more sense because at least I can make money from that. Um, but I still always loved to do stuff that was erotic and like off on the side, I would do work, do work that was of friends and so on and so forth that were like sexy. But I, the problem with photographing friends was they never wanted the pictures out there of them naked because they're not professional naked people. Okay, and then yeah. in 2005, I met Justine Jolie, who is the lesbian queen of porn. And she was the first person who was like so physically and mentally open with me and my photography. And I was like, now I get it. You actually have to photograph these professional naked people from porn stars to burlesque stars to glamour to like nude models, you you have to like find those people. Just don't ask your friends to get naked. And so I didn't realize when I photographed Justine, because I met her through a friend of a friend, how famous she was at the time. And just photographing her opened up so many other doors to so many other models that were like, I want to shoot with you if you shot with Justine. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Nice. And so it just like snowballed from there. And then in 2007, I started Stag Street, which was my first site and I still have it as like a paid erotic site to just see my work with and then it just kept uh, because of course these models always need content for their sites or just content for promotion so they're always down to especially because I was going at the time every year to two to three times a year to LA to photograph porn stars because I couldn't find who the professional naked people of New York were and then all of a sudden I met the people in the burlesque community and I was, and I was like, Oh, these are the people who want to be naked in New York. Okay, so I, yeah. For, yeah. So I photographed a lot of burlesque and they always need burlesque. People always need photos for promoting their 
gigs and their shows and stuff. So it was like a perfect marriage. And now I go to LA maybe once a year, but not as much as, as before. Kind of extending on what you've already been talking about. And it's something that I'm always interested in is that, um, you know, I come more from the, like the music scene here in Detroit. And Uh I know, I know a lot of the photographers here and I'm always wondering like what the hustle is because I'll, you know, besides, you know, I know that they get paid, you know, specifically get paid gigs from people, but at the same time, I see them always shooting, always shooting at, uh, you know, festivals or, you know, concerts or a lot of things, you know, what, you know, in general for a photographer is the hustle when at times you might be just, um, just shooting just to shoot, you know, maybe not have an assignment. I don't ever shoot just to shoot. Like the only time I, so I shoot digital, like high end pro digital for my naked lady stuff. And that's what is in both of my books. Yeah. But, like, if I were to shoot just to shoot, I do have these fun, like, a Diana Mini and a Lamography fisheye camera that I just bring around to, like, parties I have with my friends. Or I do Mermaid Parade every year. Or um, that's the only time I might shoot just to shoot. But that's more because I think – I just think that it's so – cute the way these real film cameras there's something very nostalgic about the way they are but like a a lot of times I have people because I don't do event photography but I have people confused like oh you don't have a camera on you tonight I thought you were a photographer and I'm like I'm not that kind of photographer nothing against those photographers but I like something that's more set up I like something where we've already discussed ahead of time what we're going to do more portraiture style than more documentary style. So, but, um, I, yeah, I mean, like I've already emailed with the model on what we're going to do that day. So nothing is, is new or spontaneous about it. Okay. Yeah. Then that's, yeah, that's kind of like how, cause, um, I'm a DJ also, and there's so many different types of DJs and, I'm I'm like the you know there's like the bar DJ the club DJ there's the DJ that may open up for a band or a hip hop artist you know so many different types of DJs and um, people hear that I'm a DJ and then start talking to me about like gigs that I have no motivation to do at all because I'm not that type <laughs> of DJ <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to DJ in a sports bar like please yeah. like I don't want to do that yeah so unless I was, they're paying you a lot a lot of money it like, has to be a premium it has to be like what I'm used to plus more just yeah for, yeah exactly just for the I have no, like if somebody wants to need a photograph like I I'm, I I can't say weddings because a wedding to me is kind of more in that documentary world. And I don't care how much money you give me for a wedding. The stress of making sure you got the perfect photos is way too much for me. Cause if I fuck it up, then I'm, <laughs> I'm at fault, you know, but if you want me to photograph anything else and it's not really my thing, but you want to pay me a lot of money, I am there with a smile on my face. I'm going to make it happen. So that's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have that extra pay for like, like the struggle and the mental torment of it all or whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, but I won't. That's not mental torment to me because my bills are getting paid. <laughs> I, but I, I probably won't share those photos with anybody. Like, 
you know, like those pictures aren't something that I put on my website, but I have no problem and I'll be ecstatic to be there. So, but yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. There's certain things like I don't photograph burlesque shows. I don't want to photograph the behind the scenes of a burlesque show. I don't want to photograph while the girls are actually, or men or anybody who's actually performing, but I'm down to photograph burlesque performers, just me and them. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, like, so. yeah, I like really, um, yeah, I'm always interested about, you know, pretty much in any sort of avenue, but like for photographers, like what their hustle is specifically, uh, because I see so many out and I'm just always wondering, I'm like, what's their hustle? I mean, hustle? I think they're all different. I mean, yeah. the ones that do event photography might actually also do portraiture, but it's probably easier for them to meet people with a camera in their hand because it's already advertised what they are. Yeah. Like, if you see somebody with a pro camera walking around, you're not going to be like, that looks like a dentist, you know? <laughs> like, you know that's a photographer. So, um, but, like, that, they that's probably a good way for them to network and meet people. For me, I feel like my work speaks for itself and enough people know who I am. And like, I just did this um, written interview and they were like, how do you find your models? And I was like, luckily my models find me. That's like I, I photograph enough of these well-known people that it just trickles down where they all contact me. I kind of prefer it that way. Cause at least I know they really want to shoot with me versus me trying to like beg them to shoot with me, you know? Right. Right. So, and when, yeah. when it comes to your, um, to the stuff that you shoot, you know, and when you have everything set up with these models or whatnot, you know, what, what sort of like percentage of the, of the stuff that you shoot do they use and then what do you use for like maybe you know online things well at the end of the shoot thanks to like things like dropbox like back 13 14 years ago it was a little bit harder especially when i was shooting film but um but now i when i photograph somebody i go home upload the cf card to my computer back it up and then put it all on dropbox and send it right to the model that night so they have, because I do shoots that are trade for content. So right then and there, within the first 24 hours, they have all the content. It's not retouched. If they do want the images to be retouched, they have to either wait for me to get along to it or we can discuss something. But whenever I have the content, they have it right away. And they can do whatever they want with it as long as they're not putting the entire set out there for free because I'm like, you know, if you want to use a handful of photos, that's great. But if you put everything out there for free, then nobody's going to pay for me to have the photos out there. Cool. So then after I do that, I um, retouch the ones that if I shoot, uh, when I say it like a photo set, I could do like two to three to four sets a day on one model. And the set just changes because of the outfit or yeah. like the location and so for each set, I might shoot 100 photos, but I'll edit it down to, like, the best 20 of those 100. Yeah. And then I'll retouch those to clean up things like a pimple on their butt. Or <laughs> my favorite, which is the vagina armpit, where the armpit literally looks like a fucking vagina. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like being a photographer, you would never – as, as, like, a normal human, you don't even see that. But me as a photographer, I'm like, ew, why? Why? happen and i'll 
see these photos that other photographers shoot and they'll retouch the model's face beautifully but then leave in stuff like the vagina armpit and I'm like why did you guys do that did you not look at the whole photo <laughs> so um but yeah so I'll read I'm not trying to retouch the model into having a figure that she doesn't have I'm not going to liquefy her from going from a size eight to a size two right but I will take out the stuff like pimples and bags under their eyes to make them just look fresher and and like fix the contrast and the color um and then they then i send them the retouch set and they could do whatever they want with that also so and do you do anything yourself with those uh those pictures from that same set yeah, then I put them on Stag Street, my Patreon. I now have an OnlyFans. And then when I work on all these sets, I save all the retouches and high res. So when things like a book comes along, I have the images ready to go, and I don't have to sit there retouching okay. 300 images. So <laughs> That's smart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so going into all your shoots, you know, there's a general agreement that you can do whatever you want with those. Just don't put them all on for free, and I can do yeah. whatever I want with them. And I know all my models sign model releases at the end of the shoot, and I get a photo of their ID to prove that they're legal um, because that's a real thing. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in my model release, it basically states that, like, you're allowed to use these images for, for promotion on any of your sites, but it, you can't sell the images to a third party without asking me. Like, I actually had a model that I shot back in May, and she gave one of our photos to Inked Magazine. And I get Inked Magazine, and I open it up, and I flip through the pages, and I was like, uh why is my photo in here without a credit? I didn't get compensated, nothing. And so I contacted the model and she was like, oh, I didn't even know they were going to use that picture. And I was like, what? And then I have a relationship with Inked Magazine and I contacted them and they were like, oh, she said it was fine. And I was like, no, you guys know how magazines work. You have to get permission from the photographer no matter what the photo is. Like, Really? So that I was I was a little missed. I'm not as mad at the model as I am more mad at the magazine. Yeah. But I was like, really? You can't do that. And so they ended up compensating me. And I was like, it was too late to give me a credit in the double page. It was two full pages with my photo in it. When oh. I opened it up, I felt crazy. It was like, this is my photo. Weird. What just the? big, so, just a big spread, your photo. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to tell the model and she like then copy and pasted my photo, my uh, model release and sent it to me. And I go, yeah, everything was copy and pasting. I know what it says. And it basically says what you did, you can't do. You have to, I mean, it, all she had to do is ask me first. Like, can't, I'm going to submit this to Inc. Magazine. I've been like, sure, just make sure we get some co money for it. And, or I need at least a credit. Yeah. So. <laughs> But if she uses those photos on her OnlyFans, on her, like she printed up a big one of our photos, a big banner for the Exotica um, convention, and she was like, "I just want to tell you, I printed." I was like, "That's fine. You're making money off of that. I want you to make money off of it. I just don't want a third party making money off of our photos yeah. without us getting some compensation." So, yeah, I had no problem with her making a huge banner. I was like delighted to see it i'm glad she was so happy with the photos getting into the the new book more dirty girls having fun you said that you wanted to have my more diversity 
in this book. Like, what was sort of, you know, when you start, when they brought up this idea to having a second book to help you out, and what was sort of the first steps that you uh, you took in, you know, putting together the, the photos for this book and making sure that, you know, you went a more diverse route than the first book? Well, I went through every single image I've ever posted on Stag Street, which took me about three months. Not consecutively three months because I was doing other things, but like sitting down here and there and going through all of them and trying to figure out the best of the best. And um, I started it. Um, I started it last year in the fall and had a folder on my desktop. That after two months, and I was like halfway through my archive, the folder just disappeared. Oh. <laughs> I have no idea. I blame it on the Lyme disease and my neurological issues, but I have no idea where it went, but I had to start all over again to go through everything. And so I went, sent, and then I took every one of my favorite best of photos and sent them to the publisher, to Goliath. And I took out some of the photos that I knew were in the first book, obviously, but I also tried to push the models that I wish were in the first book that I really wanted in to be in the second book. So then they sent me back what they liked as their edit. And I went back to them like, uh, no, I think Eliza Lore, I think Anna Fox, they need to be in this book. Now I don't know if you know who Anna Fox is, but she's like the, like, I think she's the biggest black porn star working today. Okay. And I was like, the fact that you don't want her in it is like crazy to me. <laughs> like she's so freaking gorgeous and she's very well known. <laughs> so like I went back and forth with them and was like, I think some of these kind of people have to be in it too. And they were like, Oh yeah. Okay. And there was no argument about it. They were down to like, yeah, okay. Add those ones in it. So that's basically just all that happened with diversity. Yes, Charlotte Stokely and Justine Jolie and Heather Vandevin are models that were predominantly in the first book who were most definitely also in the second book. But the second book has um, London Andrews, who's like a bigger girl, and Eliza Lohr and uh, Poison Ivory, who are all more diverse. Asa, Kira, who they picked a couple pictures for Asa in the first book, and then they omitted it when... It went to publishing, and I was like, how do you not have Asa Akira? Like, she's still, like, one of the biggest porn stars ever who's lived. <laughs> yeah. I made sure that those kind of people were more in this book. You know, how you know when it comes to the photos in the book, you know, how, how much of the stuff was already – that you already shot, but then how much of the stuff did you uh, shoot specifically with this new book in mind? None of it I shot with the new book in mind. Um, but there are some photos of, like, Sarah Hunter that I shot after the first book. So I remember, like, when I shot with Sarah Hunter, she was like, are you okay with spread vagina? And I was like, I'm never I'm, I'm never going to say no to anything a model wants to bring to the table. I just ask the models to be nude if they want to spread vagina, use toys, have sex with each other. That's all on them. If they want to do it, I will take pictures of it. But I would never say, now you guys have to have sex together. Like, <laughs> I... <laughs> I'm not fucking Harvey Weinstein, you know? So, um, yeah. yeah. So, 
I'm more about like treating my models the way I want to be treated. And if they're cool with it, taking naked pictures, however far they want to go or whatever outfit or dress or lingerie or bikini they want to wear, I'm totally down for. And a lot of the times my models will bring an outfit that they'll be like, no photographer ever wants to shoot me in this. And I'm like, then let's most definitely shoot you in that. Like, cause you're excited about it. And if no other photographer sees how, awesome this is then let's do it because I want to be that photographer who like it and sometimes they'll bring me stuff where like uh, Madison Young once had this huge yellow long sleeve floor like basically neck to floor dress this yellow floral dress and I saw it and she's like I've always wanted to shoot with this and I was like okay but we're taking nude pictures and you're basically covered completely I was like how is this happening um, and then she made it so beautiful and interesting and she looked like an angel in it and she was like pulling the skirt up to show off her naked body and I was like oh you you saw this already I just was here to help capture it so I'm excited when that happens but none of the photos like I I was yes of course I was hoping I'd make another book and I'm hoping to make a third book but I don't actually take the pictures going oh this will be great for the book (laughs) like I look at it as just it's an archive of my photography from the past now almost 14 years and there's some images in there that are almost 14 years old and then there's some from like two years ago so it's all over the place yeah the cover model is Masumi Max and when I sent her the photo of the cover she was like oh my god I have so many more tattoos now it's so weird to see my body like that (laughs) so even stuff like that when you're doing these shoots, you know, what's the sort of atmosphere that you're trying to create, you know, within the room when you're doing it? You know, do you have, do you ever have times when you really need to, you know, uh, make the models a little bit more comfortable, that they're a little bit nervous? Yes. Um, when it comes to atmosphere, I always say that I like it when at the end of the shoot, everybody's like, it just felt like we were hanging out. And then all of a sudden these photos got made. (laughs) I want, I want it to feel like we're having not like a bonding experience, but we're just like having a nice afternoon together. And then we're taking pictures, but we're talking and I do behind the scenes video, which is usually just like literally a video camera on a tripod because it's usually only me and the model. So I can't handhold the video camera while I'm shooting. Um, but I put the behind the scenes videos on my site so people can see like what we're talking about and laughing about. Um, while these sexy photos are being made. But if there is like a newer model or I do like a lot of boudoir photography and boudoirs for like private clients. So nobody will ever see those photos. Those are just for the person paying me to take sexy pictures of them for their lovers or for just their own self. Um, If they do look nervous, I start off the shoot with saying, okay, I don't want you to think about me taking these photos I want you to concentrate on something that makes you happy and whatever your happy place is if it's a food if it's your lover if it's your pet if it's like an actual place like Paris I every time I feel like your shoulders are coming up and you're not breathing I'm going to make you think of that happy place again and usually that always like relaxes them and puts a smile on their face and then they're not thinking so hard about being sexy in that moment because sometimes just having a smile is insanely sexy and you don't have to have that like 
porn star look on your face <laughs> like you're having sex at that moment. Like a <laughs> smile is beautiful and it shows that you're happy to be there and you're happy in your own skin. So I, I never have a problem with sm- models who smile. Like that's confidence. That's, that's, a, that's alluring to anybody because people want to be around people who smile. When, you know, and you've kind of touched on this before, uh, before with, you know, women mentioning, you know, they want, they've never shot in certain outfits or whatnot, but, you know, during the shoots, you know, what are you looking for to make that you, you know, that, you know, the shoot's going well. And if you feel like, you know, people are, are, you know, being a little cold or a little nervous during the shoot, you know, what's sort of the back and forth, you know, in regards to throwing ideas out there, you know, cause you were mentioning also like, uh, are you cool with vagina, <laughs> you know? So like, so what's sort of like the back and forth, like during the shoot? I'm usually they start, we start off in a location and it could be outside. It could be in an apartment, wherever, but they will usually um, put all their outfits down and lay it out for me to see. And then I'll set up lighting and, and put my camera together Um and then we talk about, like, I'll be like, oh, I really love that laundry set. Let's start with that. And let's start with that on the bed or in this area. And um, and they usually start with some kind of clothing on and then slowly peel it off for the reveal. So it it's not – I feel like it's so much more simpler than it could even sound because we've already discussed that they're okay with being nude. So it's not, and and then there'll be a point where I'm photographing them in lingerie, and I'll be like, "Okay, you want to take off your bra? Do you want to take off your underwear?" And then I'll suggest things like, "Oh, I really like it when you looked over there," or "Do you want to lay down? Do you want to stand up?" But it's it's just more casual than anything. It's not so like rigid and like I need a certain photo from them. And it's like, especially with the first set that we're shooting sometimes we i'll be a little rusty not just the model and it might take like 20 30 shots before we both start going into the flow of it after you do these shoots you know when you're looking over the photos what are you looking for that uh you know makes it a good photo i don't know i don't know if like like i mean i might edit the photos differently from somebody else like if i gave I, I mean, I, and I have, especially like boudoir clients, I'll give them all the photos and ask them to edit out, out their favorite ones. And then they'll send me the like five that they want retouched. And I'll be like, why did you pick those five? Like there was so much better, sexier ones out there. And I might suggest it to them. But um, I really love when a photo, there's a beautiful woman taking off lingerie is sexy but i like when the photo has actually some kind of story or mystery in it like if she's taking off the lingerie and looking in the mirror but not looking at me at somebody else you might be like i wonder where she's looking so it's not even about her taking off the lingerie it's more like you're questioning what's the mystery behind where where she's looking and that to me is more interesting and compelling and i would more retouch and want to put that photo into a photo set than just the one of her taking off her panties so i and i love things that are kind of a little bit surreal like i actually just and i can um 
email it to you. There's this one photo of Justine Jolie and Ryan Keeley in bed together. And I think Justine has her face in between Ryan's butt cheeks. And the way that I photographed it, Ryan's hands are up against the wall and you don't see Justine's face at all in her butt cheeks because of the way I cropped it. But there's a mirror on the other side where you just see Justine's face going into the edge of the mirror. And it's obvious what's going on because the mirror's telling you. But it's it's very surreal because it's disjointed. And I love that photo because it's so, you really have to look at it to be like, what the, oh, that's what's going on. <laughs> And I like a like a beautiful photo, especially with this Instagram mentality. People can flip through them within a split second, and uh, oh, that's pretty. I like that's pretty. I like I like I like. And I always tell people, I'm like, like my boyfriend's a tattoo artist, and I'm like, post some of the tattoos you did six months ago or a year ago. Trust me, people won't remember that you posted it. You can repost it, then he will, and he'll be like, oh my god, I got even more likes on it this time than I did a year ago. And I go, because a year ago those people looked at it for maybe a split second because Instagram something you flow through so quickly that you even forget that you liked something and I would want I love a photo that you have to stop because it's not just a pretty photo you have to stop and actually look at it and go what's going on here what what is this story what and that's more compelling to me and the kind of photos I prefer to, to make yeah, you were mentioning that when you send over photos, you know, to the models and they would pick like five and you'd be like, you know, why, you know, why these five? They're, you know, things that I thought were better. You know, what? why do you feel like they would choose those five? Do you feel like... It, oh, any- I know exactly why. Because they, they, they saw some tiny little thing about their belly fat or their double chin that I didn't even see that they didn't like. And I'll be like, do you understand I could retouch out your double chin if you're really upset about it? But overall, that photo is much better. But you don't want to use it because you're afraid that tiny bit of belly fat that they don't even really have. But in their head, they're like, oh, my God, it's like 500 pounds of belly fat that's hanging over my underwear. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like. You can't look at the, they, they literally look at the photo of, oh, my face looks better there. And I'm like, your face might look better, but this is an overall better photo. And if you let me like liquefy in that little bit of belly fat or retouch out the bags under your eyes, you'll notice it's a much better photo. So I know why they do that. Like, cause I think there's so, there's so much self-confidence or lack of self-confidence involved. You know, during this whole journey of uh, photographing women, you know, what's something that you've learned maybe even about yourself or just, you know, women's sexuality or their body image or whatnot? What's something that you've learned during this whole journey uh, photographing women? Well, I I most definitely have learned that everybody has belly fat. (laughs) (laughs) I've learned that, like, nobody is perfect. Um, that's the one thing that I have absolutely loved about being a photographer, that when you see photos in magazines, there's a whole team of great lighting, makeup, hair, retouching. Nobody looks like that. And plus, there's a two-dimensional image. Um, I usually, most days, don't put any makeup on whatsoever. 
because I don't care about, I only care about wearing makeup if I go out somewhere fancy or somebody's going to take a photo of me because I know I look better with a little bit of makeup on. And when I do wear makeup like once a week or once every other week and friends go, oh my God, you look so pretty. I'm like, well, yeah, I put some makeup on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry my face isn't that great by itself. But like, um, I, I have learned that I have confidence in myself to walk down the street with no makeup on. I don't fucking care what people think of me. Um, but I also have learned stuff from porn stars about vagina health that I had no idea about, like things to help take care of yeast infections that before you had to go to a doctor. And now I know some like great over the counter ways of doing it healthy and that your body. And, and like, I remember in my tw- I'm in my 40s now, but in my 20s, when I would have sex, I would have sex with latex condoms on, and I would feel so dried up, and I was like, what is going on? And then re- realized from porn stars, there's such a thing as a latex allergy. And now in 2000, almost 2020, 2020, we can like Google that stuff. But when I was in the early 20s, by early 2000s, I couldn't figure that out, like that there was such thing as a latex allergy that you get from condoms. So like that, I mean, that kind of stuff has been amazing that have these friendships with these professional women who know their bodies and share these, these ideas back and forth and health concerns back and forth together. And I love that open conversation and more women should be having that open conversation, not just porn stars and people like me. So about body health. Yeah. In certain ways, you know, um, you know, porn has innovated so many ways of doing things, but what I've definitely learned through various podcasts that I listen to and whatnot is that, like you said, you know, these women like know the ins and outs of their body and how to take care of them. And it's, it's amazing that, you know, the the wealth of knowledge about self self care in regards to their body parts and things that when it comes down to it, you know, our country is very making it hard to, for your regular woman to, you know, definitely take care of, you know? So yeah, I definitely like understand that it's like a really good thing if, you know, we can get more information out about. Yeah, there are, there are women out there that have never seen what their own vagina looks like, their own vulva looks like, cause they're intimidated to, or they're told that it's gross. And it's like, that, that's so sad to me. It's like, uh, your gynecologist knows more about your vagina than you do, you should be very comfortable and know what's going on down there. And if there's a weird smell coming from down there, that it could be a bacterial infection that you can easily take care of. Like, and you shouldn't be embarrassed about it because it happens to everybody. And we just need to have the knowledge and the education on taking care of these things. And God bless porn stars for being so open about that stuff. And sharing, and they need to share that stuff with each other because they can't go to work if their vagina's not working. <laughs> right, right. So, 
they find tricks and tips and talk to each other. I have a porn star friend of mine, Ryan Keeley, who um, was telling me when I shot her a co- like a month ago that she's just starting to get into anal for some of her sh- for her scenes and how nervous she's been for like over a decade about doing anal, but she wants to do it for her fans and her porn. And and I actually like I know this is totally has nothing to do with my work, but I recently started a podcast about poop. And um, me and my co-host interview everybody that either shit their pants, but we've been talking to professionals. And there's this one professional, Dr. Evan Goldstein, who's basically an eight, he's like an anal gynecologist. And he came out with this new douche and he has all these, we interviewed him about buttholes. And I was trying to tell her and like connect her. I was like, you should talk to him and his team because maybe he has things that he could suggest if you want to do anal in a safe and proper way and like and like that's so fun in itself to like know these professional doctors who want to help people who want to stick things in their butt (laughs) yeah more people are doing butt stuff these days so you know you know Let's get the information yeah, out there. Yeah, stuff is getting a little bit more popular, so but we should do it in a safe and healthy way. <laughs> so, when you're uh, you know putting out these books, you know putting out these these images of these women, you know what sort of you know what do you hope the people wa- looking at these photos get out of it? You know, is there just any sort of goals that you have in regards to like you know? women in general, sex work, you know, the woman, the women, the woman's body, you know, stuff like that, you know, what's sort of the goal of just having these images out there? I differentiate my work from straight up pornography because I believe that pornography is made to titillate the audience. Porn is made to help, help somebody get off at the end of the day or get their fetish on uh, or their fantasy. I make the work because I'm more about celebrating women and empowering them and being allies to them. If people look at my work and they want to jerk off, that's all for them. That's not my concern. I don't need you to get off on it. My work, I more want to be a celebration of like loving your body and body positivity and being excited. And that's why I photograph so many different types of women um, from tattooed women to no tattoos to all different body types to all different legal ages as long as you're 18 and older and I like I'm photographing a woman in her 50s in two weeks and I'm really excited about it because I think women's sexuality should be celebrated and should be embraced and to have these women like feeling so positive and and excited about their own bodies is beautiful. And that's where I want more people to look at my work and just look at these like stunning, incredible, confident, brave, fun, excited women and just celebrate and bask in their glory. Yeah. I think that's something that's like people never want to acknowledge or, or whatnot is that, you know, when you have like naked women, they all automatically think it's porn stuff to jerk off to. But why can't why can't there be a thing where there's naked women? They look amazing, and it's just there for like the story behind it, the art, the celebrating like these amazing looking human beings. You know, to yeah. show that there is 
And we a variety. do that in museums. When we go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and there's a naked statue in front of you, you don't think porn, but you're excited to see the artistry behind how did they make this naked human being that's so realistic out of stone or how did they paint this beautiful person you don't look go to a museum and want to jerk off all over the paintings you want to go there and bask in the glory of like the artistry to to it and the muse and and like be excited that they they created this beautiful work and i'm not saying my work should be in the metropolitan museum of art but God only knows in 500 years when I'm long gone and they're celebrating my work in that way, you know? Right. They'd be like, look at all these photos. They were, uh, they were shot by Ellen Stagg. Yeah, there's this, there was this crazy photographer who was this New York bohemian type who had all these naked women around her and she celebrated them. Like, I mean, if I had a time machine and could go forward 500 years, that would be so beyond amazing. Well, by, by that time, the, uh, by that time, the, the story would be super exaggerated and you would be some sort of like, like evil goddess who, <laughs> who, uh, you know, mind controlled all these beautiful women cause she wanted to document their beauty. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that was, but that's why, like, People over-exaggerate what happened to Betty Page. Betty Page was basically just a pinup model who did, like, the guys with the camera club. And then she got discovered by, like, Bunny Yeager to be photographed for Playboy magazine. But she wasn't, like, this, like, huge celebrity pinup model. She was just a really well-known pinup model who then went into, like, being crazy religious after... You know, but she loved her body and loved celebrating it. There's always something I always like to ask people, and it's um, what sort of a, a nugget of knowledge, you know, a lesson from your life that anybody listening to this, doesn't matter what sort of avenue of artistry that they're in, they would be able to sort of project into their own lives. I always tell, I have a lot of like baby photographers who always ask me stuff like that, and it's not just the photography. But I think if you really love and are passionate about the, the thing that you're creating, the most important thing is to just keep doing it and practicing your craft. Because if you, the only way to be better at your craft is by keep doing it. And if you are, don't have the love for doing it anymore, then move on and do something else. But if you're really passionate about something, it shouldn't be about like who else is viewing it. It should be, even if it's just a hobby, it should be something that makes you happy. And usually when people are really excited about the work that they're creating and passionate about it and creating it constantly and working on it and processing their craft, like I've been a professional photographer for over 20 years and I still feel like I'm practicing my craft to make it better because I don't want to get stagnant and doing the same thing over and over. I want it to be a better image. and I know I can make better images and I love the images I have made, but, it, but I do it for myself because it's the only way as an artist that I'm going to stay sane is to keep creating art. And yes, yeah, some days suck because you have other things you have to do to survive. Or there, there's some days where you feel like your art's just not doing it for you, but don't put it, don't put it aside. If you really do feel like you love it and you're passionate about it, keep doing it. Do you have any goals from more of a artistic standpoint 
that you want to get to as a photographer? Well, the fine art stuff, which I can email you this stuff too, so you could see um, the multiple exposures I do. I have a website for it, ellenstagart.com. Um, I, if I had my way, I would more do that work and show it in galleries and have people buy it so I could survive off of it. <laughs> uh, that would be my personal goal, but it's easier said than done. So, so um, and there's also another question I always like to uh, ask, you know, to close out interviews, and that would be, who is somebody that you would suggest that I interview for this podcast that would have some great stories or lessons to talk about? It can be one person. It can be multiple people. Just, you know, looking for a good recommendation. But it doesn't matter the subject matter? No, it doesn't. I would, I would interview Dr. Evan Goldstein, who I was just talking about, who's the anal surgeon, who's like the gynecologist to buttholes. Yeah. He, I interviewed him for my podcast and he had the best knowledge that he like everything from not even just butthole health, but just health in general. Like, I don't know if you, you know about the HPV vaccine when it came out like 15 years ago, you had to be 26 years and younger to get it for your insurance to pay for it. And as of this year, 2019, they made it 45 and younger. And I went and went, it came out, I was 27 or 28, so I couldn't get it paid for by my insurance, and I didn't want to pay out of pocket for it. But when, as of this year, the fact that they made it 45 and under, I went and got it right away. And I know the statistics in it, but I was talking to him even about it, and he was like, no, and he even opened up some more, many more of the statistics about how, like, how everybody, straight gay, male, female, they, them, whoever, should be getting this vaccine. And the age should be 150 and younger because there are plenty of old folks in old folks' homes who are getting STDs these days. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and he, like, had, and I wish I could remember these statistics, but the statistics are, like, even if you have had HPV in the past, like, it helps with, like, the six or eight strands. You may have only had one strand, so it helps with the others. And it helps with throat cancer, butt cancer, vagina cancer, all the rest of it. It's not just, like, a woman's issue. It's an everybody issue. So that was so interesting and He's awesome. And like he came out with this new douche that actually helps you have anal in a better, cleaner and safer way. And it's like and it's a, a, it's a product that like even I have a friend of mine who's a sex educator and she was like, there's a new douche. There's not there hasn't been anything new in the sex world that like has somebody hasn't already done before. And I was like, no, it's brand new. And she's like, wow. So, yeah, he's super interesting. Yeah, I guess if uh, if we can have a boner pill where uh, men can get hard-ons when they're old, you know, I think the HPV uh, thing should be covered for everybody. Exactly. Especially all these old people in old folks' homes who their, their husband or wife of, like, 50 years just died and they want to go get their groove on with somebody else. And then all of a sudden they're popping up with fucking everything from HPV, herpes, syphilis, because they think that, oh, I can raw dog it because I'm not going to get this old lady pregnant. But it's like, no, there's these people need to be educated. <laughs> so They're like, fuck it. I'm at the end of my uh, life. Let me just. Yeah, but you don't want the end of your life to also have an itchy crotch on top of it, you know? Yeah, that's. You want the end of your life to be fun. Yeah, you already, <laughs> you already got enough pills to take, man. You don't need any more. 
Exactly. <laughs> all right. All right, Alan. It's been so great to talk with you, man. Thanks for all the information. Um, yes, you too. It's been great, you know. And um, before we get out of here, uh, where can people get more information about the book, everything that you're doing online, your podcasts? You know, plug all your stuff. <laughs> My book, if you want it signed by me, you can get it at shopellenstag.com. And I will ship it personally and sign it to whoever you want. I will um, put your name on it or whatever you want me to say within reason. I won't say crazy stuff on there. Right. Um, uh, my podcast, which has absolutely nothing to do with my work, it's more celebrating poop, farts, and everything, is at heypoopypodcast.com. Um, it's just called Hey Poopy. Um, and me and my friend Dave are actually, we're both naked lady photographers, and we decided that poop is hilarious. And we've yes. also learned a lot about bidets and colonic health and, and all these other little tips. And we had a plumber on who learned about how pl plungers are horrible for your toilet. So that's been insanely fun and educational. And then everybody can see, if you just want to look at my erotic work, you can go to stagstreet.com, um, spelled stag like my last name with two g's or you can just do the one g too because i bought, bought both URLs. Smart. <laughs> awesome it's great talk and i have to go listen to your poop podcast because i i know i'll be interested in everything that you're talking about it is we just had buck angel on this past week i don't know if you know buck angel but he's the uh, man with a pussy he's a porn star who's transgender yeah and there's actually been like, like his documentary is incredible. Um, he was hilarious on our podcast and he's like, I love poops and farts. So yeah, he was so much fun, but we have everything from friends on who just have great. I shit my pants stories to, um, to professionals who know what they're talking about. So that was my interview with Ellen Stagg. Go check out more dirty girls having fun. It's a great book. Please order it now. For more information on Ellen Stagg, the new book, and all of our work, there will be links in the show notes for this episode at FreshesThePodcast.com. And before we get out of here, I definitely want to remind you about the two other podcasts that I've launched recently. First off, the Detroit Music History Podcast, Renaissance Soul, and then also the music podcast, Breaking Records, all available on all the streaming platforms and also at FreshThePodcast.com. So please go subscribe, rate, and review. That definitely would help me out. And if you would like to support the podcast in any way, go to FreshThePodcast.com and click on the Support the Podcast link at the top. And there's so many ways that you can support, either by spreading the word on your social media platforms, rate and reviewing on your favorite um, streaming platforms that has... Uh, any of the podcasts, Fresh of the Word, Renaissance Soul, Breaking Records, or you can donate via Patreon and PayPal. So please just go to freshofthepodcast.com and click on the Support the Podcast link at the top, and there's ways that you can definitely support what I'm trying to do here. So thank you for listening. Goodbye and good night. Fresh, 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 fresh is the word.